This is Joel Spolsky, the host of the Stack Overflow podcast. Our podcast depends on listeners like you, who aren't you because you're already listening, and we need more listeners like you. We don't have any kind of fancy marketing budget, so please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you. Yo, yo, yo. This is D-Rex, D-Rex Alicious in the house. <laughs> D-Rex Alicious. <laughs> Nice. Rexalicious. I think I actually own Rexalicious.com too. This is the Stack Overflow Podcast, episode 109, recorded Thursday, May 11th, 2017, at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York, New York, host to 56 million tourists a year who marvel at the lights of Times Square, enjoy only in New York dining experiences such as Applebee's, the Olive Garden, and Red Lobster, and generally express confusion over why one of the world's richest cities literally has bags of garbage lining all of its streets all of the time. And where 8 million people live in peace and enjoy the benefits of democracy, at least through the end of this month. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stack Overflow Jobs. No spam, no fake job listings by sketchy recruiters. Join the thousand developers that create a jobs profile every day. Yes, every day. And see what it's like to use a jobs platform that actually puts developers' needs first. Try it today at stackoverflow.com jobs. We are also sponsored by the Tomy family of 80s robots from Omnibot 2000, who will serve your friends drinks with his articulated right arm and record their reactions on his revolutionary tape memory to the whimsical Hootbot, the top rated owl robot probably ever. There's a Tomy robot in the family for everyone. On today's podcast, we have VP of Engineering, David Fullerton. Hi. Guest constitutional scholar and longtime producer, Jess Pardue. Hello. Our news editor is Alana Itzaki. Hello. Also with us today is returning guest, Nick Larson, Stack Overflow developer, raconteur, and author of recent blog post, How to Talk About Yourself in an Interview. Hello. Joel is on the road, so I am your guest host, or as I call myself, master and commander, Jay Hanlon. How are <laughs> you doing, Jay. guys? Hi. How is I thought you are going to shorten guest host to ghost. Oh, my God, you're a ghost. That's not the direction you went. <laughs> He got some color last week, so. This is like one of those <laughs> tricks where I have newfound power and you're like, use your power to make yourself a ghost and you outsmart the genie and then it's all bad for me. Hey, so. I have a fun fact. I did a jingle for Tommy years and years and years ago Stop for the it. toy show. Tommy had a log and load train. Sure. Oh, do you yeah, remember it? Mateo do you remember me? it? Log and load train. Yeah. No, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I missed the jingle. Maybe if you could. Yeah, just do one more time for us. Uh, it's a Tommy log and load train. Oh my That's God. like the only thing I remember. Wow. <laughs> Can I buy one? I feel 80s. the need to buy one after hearing that. Do you guys remember those 80s robots? They were so awesome. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I was, yeah, I mean, I was yeah, barely okay. alive old, at that I point. I get it. I saved up, like, I measured everything in Star Wars figures then. Like, I'd save up my allowance <laughs> of, like, a quarter until I had, like, $3 to buy a Star Wars figure. And I saved up, like, hundreds of Star Wars figures worth, it felt like it probably wasn't, to buy Verbot, who was the one you talked into a little, oh, man. Anyway. So one time when I was little, my parents gave me an allowance, and then they promptly forgot about it. And so I just kept careful track on a piece of paper until one day, like nine months later, I went to them and was like, I have enough to buy a Super Nintendo. And they were like, well, it looks like your records are accurate. So I guess we have to buy you a Super Nintendo now. And that's how I got a Super Nintendo. Wow. I don't know if that means your parents were awesome or terrible, but either way, you had a Super Nintendo. So it was pretty good for you. It was pretty exciting. Okay. What's next on the lineup? David, do we have a one-minute tech review for today? I do. I want to review my coffee machine. 
Oh, it's like Joel's sitting here with us right now. Right? Mm -hmm. I know. I realize Joel's not even going to be here to talk about espresso. So longtime friends of the Stack Overflow show know in our offices, we have these latte machines that you get trained on. And I didn't even drink coffee until I started working out of this new office and got addicted to lattes. And then I started working from home. And this is a real problem because I didn't have any lattes at home. So I decided to buy just about the cheapest latte machine on the market. And this is the DeLonghi EC155 espresso machine. And it's actually pretty decent. So it makes a latte. Uh, uh, <laughs> Check. So I had been cautioned. So Joel was like, when I got the training on the latte machine, this was back when Joel did the trainings himself. And we have a La Marzocco here. That's what we have here in the office. So we have like the nicest, most expensive latte machine you've ever seen in the office. And Joel, in explaining to me this latte machine was like, this is not like your crappy average at home latte machine. This is the real deal. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. Never use one of those crappy at-home latte machines. They're a total waste of your time. <laughs> he was like, because they only have one boiler. And so it's really annoying. When you heat it up, you got to heat it up to one temperature for the espresso and then a different temperature for the steam. And I was like, that sounds terrible. I'm never getting a machine <laughs> that I have to do that. Lo and behold, it's, it's not actually that big of a deal. It takes about a minute to switch temperatures and works just fine. So if you, like me, are addicted to lattes and you know spending $4 per latte on average to buy them from your whatever favorite coffee shop is, get your own machine. They work pretty well. Even the cheap ones are not terrible. This DeLonghi, I can recommend. And make your own lattes. When Joel trained you on that coffee machine, there's like a moment in the interaction where he like he's explaining those things. Well, the difference is, and you get to this point where he's like, if you're struggling with the consistency of your microphone, what you can do at <laughs> home is have one drop of dish soap in a cup of water will replicate this effect and you can practice without wasting. And I looked in his eyes and it was like that moment when someone's explaining to me like how different cables will have some effect on how your audio your system works. And I'm over. like, we are different kinds of animals and you can stop <laughs> saying words to me now. So fun fact, like you said, Joel used to do all of the espresso trainings in the offices because if you start working in one of the Stack Overflow offices, you cannot use the espresso machine unless you were trained on it. Because if you break it, then I think yeah, there then would you buy just, it. Yeah, there would just be a complete <laughs> revolt in the offices because that is the heart of everyone's caffeine. So when I started in this office, Joel was still doing the espresso trainings and he found out that I used to run a coffee shop. So he was like, oh, perfect. You can now do all of the espresso trainings and you better make sure nobody breaks this machine. So I was like, thanks, Joel. Sure. So now I tell everyone that if, you know, they break it, then. Oh, it won't cost them their job. It'll cost you your yeah, job. It, so that's my the job. real danger. Absolutely. So no pressure. Ew, I'm Jess. safe. <laughs> that's good, though. No you know, threatening the people around someone is often more effective than threatening them directly. <laughs> I like that. You know, it's, well, it's a good way to lead. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, well, you know, I don't have time to supervise all of these hundreds of people who are using the latte machine. So I'm going to make it your problem. And if any one of them breaks it, then you're fired. That's what teamwork means, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's everyone coming together. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, David now can make coffee in his house like basically everyone else in America. So not just coffee, Jay. Delicious sorry, lattes. Sorry. A latte. Are you going to start an Instagram specifically for your very own coffee at home? Good question. I mean, you are a millennial. <sighs> we established this before we started recording. I maintain that while I may be a millennial in age, at heart, I'm an old soul and therefore I not a millennial. I would second that. You're a curmudgeonly 31 years old. Yeah, you, you do. F you feel more like someone on their lawn shaking their fist at the sky. I'm, I'm going to back that too. <laughs> okay. Do the lattes that come out of this have leaves? 
in the phone. Good question. Okay, so to be clear, this is not a latte machine where you just press the button and it makes it for you. I'm actually opposed to those. This is when you actually control the steam yourself, which I think is much better. So the leaves that come out are only up to my own ability to make a leaf, which is not so excellent So you don't get all. leaves We were supposed to have all. a latte art class. But to be clear, when I use the expensive machine in the office, they also don't look like leaves. It, usually it's a ghost. That's what it ends up looking like. Um, I can make ghosts all day long if that's the latte art you're looking for. Awesome. So ghost is the answer to what latte art can David create and what Halloween costumes are you competent enough to make, basically. Is that is, that is correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. What's next on the lineup? Oh, it's me. <laughs> it's ranch time. So I keep trying to evoke Joel's spirit when I do these rants, but this one came from the heart. I was having an actual experience. So everybody here, I imagine, you know, sometimes you have to unsubscribe from an email list. Somehow you are receiving emails and maybe, you know, you like bought one thing and you didn't check a box, but in any case, I just set up a filter to forward them to you instead of unsubscribing. Well, that would explain <laughs> some of this problem. So this first interaction is you're in this never ending cycle of interaction with some company that you just want to be over, right? That's what's happening. Maybe you already bought their Instatall in shoe lifts, but you don't feel like How they do you make know, you more confident, Jay? right? <laughs> anyway, it's not important what you've done, but you want to escape this cycle of interaction with them. And so you click unsubscribe. And more often than not these days, you land on MailChimp, a MailChimp page, or Melachimpa, as I like to call it. And thank what? goodness you're like, this company has a whimsical postal monkey icon and a reputation for protecting users and penalizing spammers. And this is going to be awesome because it's MailChimp. And here I am on a page that just, it's very simple. It says, just tell us why you're unsubscribing. And there's a short list of choices and click this giant big unsubscribe button. And I think this is going to be wonderful. This will be the end of this cycle of unwanted interactions. And I pick, you know, I never signed up for this list or I don't want to get these anymore. And I try to be honest. They're not penalized for spamming if they didn't. And I click the big unsubscribe button and I'm like, whoo, this is all over this cycle of annoyance. And where am I? On the same page with the same question with the same list of choices, with a giant button at the bottom that says unsubscribe, which I press again. And where am I? On the same page again, in a cycle of anger and fury. <laughs> because MailChimp, what they do on every one of these unsubscribe pages is they serve you the same page with an additional small box in a much smaller font up at the top of the page, which sounds good, right at the top they put it, but it's not down where you're looking where your button is up above that says, great, you've been unsubscribed, and then proceeds to ask you the same question again. Well, you might want to unsubscribe again harder. And I, Well, I do. I press the mouse button twice as hard, and I wind up on the same page. And so the conclusion of my rant is, MailChimp, maybe you should sponsor our podcast instead of all those silly serial ones. But that makes me crazy, and they need to fix it because it's not that hard to take you to a new page where you don't have choices you can't do. You know what's really a nice feature in Gmail? You can just, as long as I can understand the unsubscribe link, they will show you like an unsubscribe button oh, really? that you can just press. Where is it? Now I can't find it. I really never thought so much about that, actually. I thought it would just like unsubscribe you, and then you're just on the same page. <laughs> have you ever stayed at a Marriott? <laughs> I don't, but I'm ready to be mad about this too. I mean, I'm sure I must. No, this have. happened to all of us, wasn't it? It was last yeah. year at the meetup, right? I we still all get got these stupid emails. We all I got can't subscribed get rid of them. to the Marriott emails after the meetup last year, and you could not get out of them. Well, you're probably unsubscribing to like the Tuesday afternoon bed fluffiness marketing email is the problem. Probably. Yeah, they have so many different categories of the email, so you at least have to do like five or six of them to get rid of every single one of them. I bought one thing at Bloomingdale's once. 
And I've gotten about 90 different types of Bloomingdale's emails. Oh, man, no. But when you click the unsubscribe link, it says it may take four to six weeks for this to take. And I'm it like, should not what? take that shouldn't. long. Six six what happened weeks? is when you clicked that, it printed out a piece of paper. And somebody <laughs> at the end of the week takes something. all those pieces of paper and faxes them over to the other office where they're printed out. And they have to be individually processed to remove you from the list. And they only accept 100 a day. <laughs> That's right. There's a line. You're in the queue. We'll get to it when we get to it. I do have that thought every time, which is like, I can respect the batch process, but am I to believe you can only process one every 10 business days? That seems a little bit weird. Okay. So the moral of the story is don't stay at a Marriott. And we have with us today our special guest, as mentioned earlier, Nick Larson. Welcome back, Nick. Hey, how are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right. <laughs> Okay, then. Nick, so last time you were our fourth tier data team member guest, but this time you are the star of the show. And as such, you are featured in our weekly developer story. And so you get to, I should say you have to, you are obligated to tell us, how did you first get started coding? What first got you writing code? So the long and short of it is basically I was about 11 years old and my mom decided she wanted to go back to college and she was going to do IT. So we got a computer from our cousin or my cousin and all it had was a floppy drive. It didn't even have a hard drive. Like you had to put a floppy in to turn the thing on sure. and get it to boot up. Do you remember what kind of, was this like a, this is like a. It's an 8088. I still have it. Nice. Yeah. It's at my mom's house. I'm not sure if it still turns on or not, but yeah, we ended up eventually getting a 20 megabyte hard drive for it so that I can install the OS on the actual hard drive. But when you turn these things on, there's not a whole lot you can do. You literally just get like a command prompt. And it's yep. not even like C, it's just like, you know, an angle bracket. And so I didn't know what to do. But then we went to the dentist. And oh, the I, can dentist... See, I can see where this is going already. Really? You no, know what... no, not at all. <laughs> not one tiny bit. At the dentist, they used to have these magazines like highlights, you know, for like kids. Yes, I loved highlights. <laughs> and then there was three, two, one contact. <laughs> and when you open up three, two, one contact inside, they would have basic programs. Sure. Oh. Oh, yeah. So first of all, I want to say it's not highlights, you know, like for kids. It's quote highlights for kids, unquote. Highlights for kids was the name of the magazine. It's mm -hmm. just part of the title. But I remember three, two, one contact was like, it was like Sesame Street, then Electric Company, then for yeah. the oldest kids, three, two, one contact. They were like, you just retype them, right? That's what they were, the basic programs. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Some of them were short. Some of them were long. Like some of them were like a whole page. But uh, I was like, I would go in there and I wouldn't take the magazine. I would just remember the whole thing and then go home and type it in so I could only do the short ones. And it was always something like, you know, choose a number between one and 10 and it randomly selects a number and compares it to whatever you chose and whatever would be like the whole thing. As a side note, I memorized the entire program and left the magazine there and went home was an outrageous and ridiculous lie to tell in order to convince us you did not steal a magazine from a doctor's office, but okay. <laughs> sure. Anyway, so that's sort of how I got started. And then my dad actually had a computer. My parents are divorced, so I would go visit my dad in the summertime. And he got a computer, I think when I was about 13, that had some way to connect to the internet. I don't know what he was using. Maybe it was AOL or whatever Probably it was back then. Probably a quote-unquote modem back then. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the, the trick of all of this was I had the internet, and you can go look things up on the internet when you have the internet, and it was amazing. And so that's all I did all summer long, and he got super mad at me for not ever going outside. And this stuck with me all the way through high school, too. He continuously got mad at me until I told him I was going to college 
to do this <laughs> before he finally accepted that like oh okay well i guess you could do that then and have you been outside since <laughs> not really okay not too much okay except to launch rockets oh except to launch rockets yeah but, but yeah that's how i got started I'm big into games. I also love playing Magic the Gathering, and I wrote a Magic the Gathering game that you could play over like a network if you had two computers hooked up to each other. Wow. And that was like my big thing. Wow. Did you ever have LAN parties? I only had LAN parties when I started playing games, not making them. And that wasn't until like high school. Nobody wanted to come over and play the game that you made. You need a second computer. You need a wire to connect them. You need a friend. And you know, (laughs) any of them missing it, it it gets super challenging. And so I assume you were ultimately sued by Wizards of the Coast for your violation of their intellectual property? No, I wasn't. I never actually published it online, and I never used any of their intellectual property. I actually typed all of the card stuff in by hand. It's not how intellectual property works. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say you have been well coached by counsel on how not to incriminate yourself on a podcast. <laughs> so you have two blog posts that I think would be really interesting to talk about. Why don't we kick off with, you had a blog post, gosh, was it maybe three weeks ago, give or take, that I loved, how to talk about yourself in an interview. And you covered sort of tips for developers specifically and how to think about coming into interviews, which feels like, it's not like it's a novel thing to talk about, but I don't see as much of people talking about coming at it from that direction. But why don't you share with our listeners who many of them don't read or, or don't care to or don't like to read words you've written. That's why they listen to podcasts. Yeah. What are kind of your top or your favorite bits of advice for folks as they think about coming into an interview as a developer? I would say that like the biggest thing is you have to be prepared to talk. When I talk to most people about interviewing, they always say, oh, you know, what do I need to study? Do I need to learn algorithms? Big O, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is, for the most part, you don't unless you're going to a company that's just absolutely going to like drill you on that stuff specifically. But I would say for the most part, most companies don't actually care about the specific things like that. You are going to have to do a technical question and you are going to have to get it mostly right. But if you can't like explain why you're making the decisions that you're making in the way that you're implementing it, you're going to fail the interview even if you get the question right. So just be prepared to talk. You have to talk a lot. And then primarily, I say, like, make it a conversation. Making it a conversation is super important because you don't want to go off on a tangent or do something that they don't expect. And then they try to bring you all the way back to the beginning or, you know, start you over. So make it a conversation. Force them to tell you that they're following along with you as you're going through whatever it is that you're going through, whether you're, you know, telling a story or actually doing the problem, whatever. And then the third thing is practice. Like, answer questions talk about the things that you've done don't just do things and assume that they're dumb everything is actually cool because no matter what it is that you've done somebody else hasn't done that and they want to know how you did it so go practice go talk to people you don't have to like get into an interview situation to practice you don't have to have somebody sitting there asking you like predefined questions or whatever literally just go talk to people about the stuff that you do and you're going to be a lot better at it So I honestly would say this felt to me like the single best post I've ever read on how to interview. Wow, I really appreciate that. If you haven't read it, go read it. Just on the Stack Overflow blog, how to talk about yourself in an interview. You were targeting developers specifically, obviously, and there's a lot of things in here that are specific to devs. But just as someone who's interviewed a lot of people and been in a couple, but not many, I thought you really nailed and nailed more clearly a lot of the things that people just really overlook. One of the things I loved was sort of the notion of you don't need to wonder what they're going to ask you as much. You're trying to map to that, but you're going in with a story to tell. Like what I really liked is like there is a story you want to tell that can be mapped back to things they care about. 
And what you've got to do is come in with these things, this plan of the right projects and the right stories. And it's not like trying to cheat. It's trying to convey who you are, right? And the things that kind of sell that message. And then also you then break down all the ways you're going to go off track. And then the other thing I thought was super cool that you just talked about that people miss is practicing for an interview feels ridiculous. Like it feels crazy. And so you don't do it. You like make up a bunch of bullets and you're like, all right, I'm now ready. Even if you think ahead to get a story, until you sit down and start to walk through it, you realize like, oh, to explain that, I've got this side thing and that's kind of long. And I just thought it's an unbelievable balance of sort of the big picture things with the specific ways to come at it. Yeah, the practice thing is actually kind of interesting. I sort of on the side do uh, interviews for people who go to boot camps. It's just like a thing that I really enjoy doing. And so... Wait, sorry. You mean you mentor folks who are going into that situation? Yeah, exactly. So like a boot camp will call me in and I give like a two-hour talk, basically going through this and, and some more stuff about, you know, how to prepare for interviewing, what to expect, this sort of thing. And then actually interviewing all of them. And the train wreck percentage is like above 50% when you're doing these. Now, granted, a lot of these people aren't like CS graduates or anything like that. But at the same time, they're missing these parts where like they're not having a conversation or they're rambling or, you know, they think the stuff that they want to talk about is dumb. So, you know, they try to glaze over some of the details when the interesting stuff is like, hey, you found some problems and I didn't find those problems. Let's talk about those problems, you know. And so it's also that I really love that they have the train wrecks with me. That's the practice session, right? You're not going into your first two or three interviews and leaving there crying with them. You're leaving there crying with me instead, which is beneficial to you. Sorry. So you said is what you really enjoy is how terrible they do in a way that makes it obvious you're better than them and that often they even cry. Is that correct? <laughs> I think most of those words okay. were in there. Okay. So you're the interview drill sergeant. So yes and no. Like, I hate making people cry. But, but there's a but that's one of the things will? I admire most about you, Nick. <laughs> there is a but here. But when you start crying, I'm not going to stop it. And this is actually one of the things that I do is tell them, like, just straight up, I'm in character. We're going through this. I'm not coming out of it unless you decide you want to cancel and, like, bail, you know, at which point I'm happy to stop and we can talk through whatever the problems are and, and whatever else. But, like, I do feel like it's important that people have that experience of it feeling real. What do you think is the biggest misconception that some of the people have that you coach? Everybody worries about the problem. Everybody worries about the technical thing, and they're just trying to get to it as fast as possible. They will like skip over so many details. They just want to tell you the answer about things. In fact, this was something that I really developed through that process was I don't actually care what the answer is. I just want you to tell me all the things that didn't work, right? Like, if you just tell me the thing that worked, I could be like, oh, yeah, well, I knew that. But like, how did you figure that out? That's sort of important to know. It's sort of important to understand that you're able to work through the problem and not just like, hey, I you know, Googled something and bam, there was the answer. You know, if that's how you did it, that's great. But, you know, why did you Google what you Googled? You can always go backwards one step. I think that's one of those things that feels sort of universal, which is in a lot of interview interactions, the fundamental question is sort of how does somebody approach a problem? Like you don't care that much where they land or what inputs they have, but it's more about the way they're thinking about it. When I used to interview people, I used to interview people in a finance role where they dealt with incredibly difficult other financial professionals. And there's people always calling up mad and demanding and sort of unreasonable. And part of what you were trying to get to in these interviews was like, how is this person going to function in that environment? Like, are they going to be miserable? Are they going to be okay with it? And it's awkward because like you never want to be putting someone in a sort of discomforting situation, but it's like, there's a little bit of, you're not going to do well if you can't deal with a little bit of kind of 
sort of sudden weird interactions. <laughs> and one of the things I landed on, and it's one of the answers didn't matter at all. I like the idea of making interviews suddenly weird to test how they deal with sudden weird interactions. I literally asked someone, like, what's 42 times 17? And it was in a super, like, mathy, like, these are trading jobs, there's a little bit of math. But you don't need to do that kind of stuff in your head. You just ask any two-digit numbers. You ask them to multiply two two-digit numbers. And there's a whole bunch of weird things that happen. So one is you watch someone in real time go through this realization of, like, huh? And then go... I'm about to demonstrate I can't do arithmetic because it's pretty hard for most people to instantly answer it in your head. But being given that kind of multiplication problem, it feels like the same as being asked what's two plus nine, except you don't know the answer. And there's this horrible moment. And I felt super guilty, but it was actually, it was sort of effective. Some people get angry quick. And the key there is like, they were going to be a bad fit, but that was the one bad problem. And the other terrible problem is some people would panic and guess. <laughs> which is also a very, very bad instinct. And this is not a good, like, single filter question. Like, this is unfair in lots and lots of ways. It's but why one of many would they things. get mad? Like, how it's... dare you ask me simple arithmetic? But it's, the thing is, it's not simple. I don't know. If I were in that seat, I'd be kind of irritated. People get mad when they feel like you're not interviewing them. It's like a defense mechanism. Like, they're kind of cornered, and it's almost like fight or flight sometimes. Yeah. I've had interviews that go sideways where the person, like, if they're not expecting a technical question... I've had people like get mad that I'm even asking them a technical question, which is why it's like we always try to clarify before going into the interview what to expect. Yeah. Uh, I think just part of it is like it feels like a natural reaction is my answer to that is an unfair way to judge me on my skills right. for this type of thing. How dare you judge me yeah. on... No, I, I understand. And there's like a couple of good ways to come at it, but it's mostly like the process is what's interesting. There's a best way to come at that if you don't have a system. Where you, anyway. So anything else, Nick, that you would highlight as like critical? What's the one thing people should never do in an interview? What do you see most often that is like a disaster that can be understood and avoided? There is this really bad thing that happens. It happens in interviews here at Stack Overflow a lot, funny enough. And it happens in like when you're doing practice stuff, like legitimate practice stuff a lot also is we're not expecting you to get all of the problems right. And occasionally we will help you get through something that you're stuck on. We have one problem where like the first question, 70% of people get stuck on it. And so you always just help them and you get them over that first little hump. The problem is not that we helped you this one time. I'm more than happy to help you even a few times throughout the interview. It's that if you get help that first time and then you immediately start trying to get more help every time you get stuck, right? So when I give you the help the first time, if you get stuck the second time and they start looking at you and they stop looking at the problem, they're trying to encourage you to give them help. And that is a horrible thing to do because at some point I am just going to say, solve the problem. And if you can't do it at that point, you're, you're going to freak out. You're going to lose your focus. And as soon as you lose your focus in an interview, it is basically over. And I think that's one of the big benefits of practicing is that it's like, like a lot of things... It's a weird artificial environment that you are not used to and nobody is used to, nobody is comfortable in. And practicing is about just getting used to that comfortable environment. So it's not like you don't get overwhelmed and distracted. Those are the worst interviews. So I thought where you were going to go with that is actually like you help them and then they start to like panic a little bit because they feel like they failed the first question. Yeah, and then that panic starts to like build. I've definitely seen that. And I always feel terrible at the end of those because it's like, I don't even know how I can judge this because they just had a bad interview, like, and they just got overwhelmed and their brain shut down. And if I could reset the interview, they might have done it totally differently. Well, you should reset the interview, not all the way to the beginning. You should inform them, like, as you're giving them help. 
don't worry, this is just a little bit. We're moving on to the next part. We have like eight more problems to solve. Just saying something like that will immediately get them back into the mindset, oh, what's the next thing? Most of the time, anyway. You know, occasionally you're going to have that person who just like completely goes off the rails at that point. We talked about this a little bit before. One of the challenges in these is we're trying to get certain signals out of this interview that help us identify who will be a better fit or won't be as good a fit. But at the same time, I think we struggle with this, this awareness that the interview is not an awesome replicated environment for what they'd be doing day-to-day at work, right? It's, it's a tricky balance. I say yes and no to that. I'm actually one of the people who much prefers doing interviews like this as opposed to doing like project take-home type stuff interviews. Now, for certain kinds of jobs, of course, I'm talking about for like just general developers, you know, like full stack developers, web developers, whatever. Yep. This kind of interview is actually preferable for me. Do you worry, though, that like is an introvert or certain types of personality types going to struggle more in, in that interaction than they would if they were asked to do the same thing and write code on their own, do you think? Yes. Absolutely. But at the same time, like it's sort of the language of getting a job. You know, you're not looking for a job all the time. You don't speak this language all the time. I hate drawing this analogy, but it's the best thing that I've come up with so far. But it's sort of like I learned Spanish. I took Spanish for seven years in like high school and college. I can barely have a conversation with somebody in Spanish. I can like if I absolutely have to but I am not fluent in it at all. I'm like looking stuff up. I'm asking questions. I'm trying to get them to speak English as hard as I possibly can. (laughs) But that's sort of what being an interview is like, right? If you go into it and you don't know the language and you're not ready for it, it's very, very difficult. But if you practice and you learn the language, like if I were going to go to Spain for a week, I mean, I'd listen to things for a month. You know, I'd get the audio books or whatever and like, you know, get ready for it, prepare for it in hopes of getting in there and, and being a little bit more okay. Even as an actor, you know, there were classes specific to auditioning. I mean, they would drill that, just take this class, learn how to audition. They were very much about practicing how to have an audition. The other thing you touched on there a little bit, kind of tangential there, Nick, is there's a meta thing often, which is interesting, I think, to me, again, most of my old days, is actually just how much do they prepare for the interview? So separate from you prepare for a thing to be good at it, the act of preparing, I think, is like an interesting signal. Again, when I was interviewing people in finance, one thing I'd often ask is like, what do you think sort of your greatest like challenge or weakness is? It's a terrible question. You actually never get like a good answer is never useful. I'm just too dedicated. Well, right. <laughs> I work too late. There are a thousand well-known ways to deflect that question credibly and answer it right. And someone who does any of them has told you nothing good about themselves. But occasionally you get someone who's like, huh. What's my greatest weakness? I, ooh, wow, huh? And I'm like, it's not preparing. I can tell you right now, it is not preparing for things like interviews. And so, like, someone who comes up blank on that has not put much work into, like, how do I think about coming into an interview? And if you want someone, if it's a role where you want someone to proactively prepare for things, it was a signal for that. There's a little bit of the preparedness, both suggests you take things seriously and you prep. And also, part of it, something Joel talks about a lot, is the more prepared they are for your interview, the more it signals they care about this job. right and coming into it with right knowledge yeah i've definitely seen that so the clearest example to me is like if you're interviewing a product manager and they can't tell you an awful lot about your product yeah they did not do their homework and you do not want to hire them as a product manager but like i wouldn't expect that of a developer because it's kind of a different thing i don't expect them to have you know researched our product so there's a little element of that i guess one of the things we didn't really touch on but that i worry about it's kind of from the other side so i think if you're looking for a job which is most people i mean everybody at some point 
you kind of have no choice but to play the game and understand the game that people are playing and prepare for it as best you can. There's a whole different set of questions when, you know, you're on the other end and you're the interviewer trying to construct the ideal interview around like, what are the right ways to interview? And, you know, what am I really selecting for? That's kind of a whole different topic. But I think, you know, that's almost kind of moot for the majority of people who are just trying to get a job, like yeah. this is sort of the state of the industry. These are the kinds of things you're going to be asked. So prepare for them. And they might be dumb questions. They might suck. But, you know, the best you can do is try to figure out how to take even a dumb question and turn it into, you know, something that makes you stand out. So that's where like one of these things I always think about is like, when I give people advice on like cover letters or resumes, it's like try to tell a story, like have an arc to it. Don't just like list your accomplishments. You're trying to kind of tell a story about why you would be the perfect fit for this company. And you're kind of doing that same thing in an interview. And it's almost the like classic, you know, politician thing of like, if you don't like the question you're asked, <laughs> just answer a different question. Great question, Anderson. But what we should be talking about is the same thing I said before. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. But like you can do that in an interview. You can kind of direct the conversation back to the thing that you prepared for that you actually want to talk about. Nick, you talk about this in your article. Um, kind of how to get things to where you want them to be. Yeah, it's more than that also. It's talk about the stuff that you did. <laughs> I hate it when I get into an interview and somebody talks about the things that happened at the company. Their company, yes, their company products. And I'm always like, but what part did you work on? And they're like, oh yeah, this backroom thing that nobody cared about. Like... That's like, well, I haven't handled that situation before, but my father did twice. And he, he lives in the same house with me for a long time. So yeah. I have a question. Are there any questions that the interviewee should be asking yeah absolutely oh tons i would say like as a general like theme or way to decide what questions you want to ask is ask questions that are going to make your decision whether or not you want to work at this company don't just ask questions about like the benefits and the stuff like that that's all stuff you can ask the hr when you get in there ask about the things that you care about if you're religious about anything and I'm, i think every developer has to be religious about at least one thing i think it's just a prerequisite uh, make sure that you ask about that thing when you get into an interview. Like if you go someplace and you expect that they're going to be doing unit tests because it's an amazing company and you get there and you find out that they don't do unit tests, are you going to like lose it? You know, ask about that stuff. Don't just make assumptions. I was really hoping you were suggesting people ask about whether like they served communion at the company or there was like everyone home <laughs> yeah, early religious for religious. <laughs> If you're but... religious, act, act, definitely talk about religion in interviews. And that's oh, one yeah. of interviewers' definitely. favorite things to talk about. Age is also good. I do think that what would help you make your decision, like how strict is your drug policy is a good thing. Like, you, you don't want to come in and be surprised, right, once you're there. I think it's a tricky thing because my take on that kind of thing, like when you, what questions do you have for me is like, I don't judge you on that. Like, like that is literally your chance to ask me the questions that will help you decide. There are some interviewers who will kind of judge you based on those questions. And like, did they ask good questions? Which I think is kind of BS. It's wrong, especially later in the process. I feel weird if I don't get asked any questions. If you're the only interviewer, I think it's weird. It feels like to me a lack of preparedness a little bit because you know you'll get asked that. But we often interview with like six people right. here. And that's where I'm always quick to say... I know you've talked to four people, so it's okay if you have no questions for me, but... Yeah, I always ask if they have any questions. And if they say, oh, well, I did, but the last person answered those, I'm totally okay yeah. with that. But it's just weird if it's like, oh, no. Not I'll really. say the best way you can handle it, one of the most impressive ones that does always read as impressive is if they can ask you a question specific to you, because that really shows they did their research. If, yeah. if they knew they were interviewing with me beforehand and like just looked me up, like... 
I mean, I guess you can do it in a cheesy way, but it's always like, I saw, you know, on your profile that you did this. What did, you know, what did that mean? Or what was that like? Yeah. It's a, that's always like, oh, wow, they did their homework. And so I think you can generalize that. Like if you don't know your interviewer, like think about who you're interviewing with and ask them questions. Like I'm kind of bored of the standard one is always like, what's your favorite thing about working here? Which isn't like the worst question to ask, but it's really softball. Like, ask them based on their position. Like, so you're a developer. You know, what team do you work on? What's it like working on that team? Who do you work with? Actually, kind of specific questions to try to really get at. Specifics. Yeah, get away from the generics. I guess it's different for everybody. But the thing, I think that there's been research. I'll wave my, wave my hand about research. But there's like, science somewhere. Your team. Your team and who you work with and whether you like them and get along with them is like the biggest determiner of job satisfaction and your direct manager, not what, you know, some team eight levels away from you in the org chart is doing unless they really have the power to make your life miserable. So like you want to get at, you know, who am I going to work with? And if you can't quite get to that because it's like, well, we don't know what team you're going to be on, at least get at like, what's it like for this person I'm talking to? What is their team like? What do they do? How do they work? Yeah. How do they interact with coworkers? I actually agree with you totally, David. From the interviewer's perspective, I think the questions I like best or see most impressive, whether they should or not, is like when someone's essentially like, oh, you laid out your goals or I see you're working on this. How do you see this role? My role is like supporting that goal. Or when someone's asking like, how would I interact with this group to make this thing happen? That specificity makes it seem like they're already in the mindset of trying to solve real specific problems. Actually, my best preparedness like and knowing what we're up to actually one of our pms who's here now and she is fantastic in our interview i was i don't know giving some spiel and answer to some other question she'd asked and i was saying like well you know i've been here for you know about four years now and she said very politely she was like actually i think it's closer to 4.5 now and i was like all right <laughs> wow and she was right. Like it was an accurate, and it wasn't a, well, actually it was in a very like upbeat positive, but I was like, this person did an astounding amount of homework and was like confident and ready to use it. So, so speaking of interviews and applying to jobs, I actually have a, a special treat in honor of Nick Larson being on the podcast and talking about interviewing. I actually pulled up his original <laughs> application from 2010, which is amazing. Are you kidding? <gasps> You've been at the company now for actually from May 2010. So almost exactly seven years ago. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to get into too many of the details because it's kind of private, but I do want to call it a couple things. The very first line of one Mr. Nicholas Larson's cover letter for this job is, let's just get this out of the way. I'm no Fairweather Braves fan, so if I move to New York, don't expect me to start cheering for the Mets. Wait, that was the first <laughs> sentence? Yes. Wow. That is his opener. The only thing more ridiculous than that is if it started with, I'm Britney, bitch. Like, that would have been slightly <laughs> more ridiculous, but not much. So, Nick, could you just tell us a little bit about the thinking that went into that and um, <laughs> whether this is a tactic that you recommend and find effective? You forgot to touch on this in the blog post, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, funny enough, I gave a talk and somebody asked me if I would have hired myself with the application that I put in here. And my answer was a very obvious no. I mean, I remember... <laughs> I, hang on, I don't mean to interrupt, but maybe it'd be more fun to ask David if he would interview you now with the information he now has. <laughs> okay, we can do that one offline. That's fine. That's fine. Go on. Go on. Sorry to interrupt. The mindset, I was actually very happy at my last job. Uh, really quite enjoyed it. I was one of only two developers, which was about the only thing that I didn't like. We had a lot of free time there because despite it being a really small company and only 24 or 25 employees, I had four levels of bosses. 
So like whenever I did anything, it had to go all the way up the chain and then it had to bubble all the way back down the chain, which sometimes take like two weeks. So literally I would do something that would take me like four hours in an afternoon and then I would wait two weeks to get something else to do. And I had a lot of free time. So I answered questions on Stack Overflow and walked around the office and like, you know, implemented stuff for other people around the office, whatever they needed help with. But I just enjoyed it. You know, it was my first job out of college. It was comfortable. It was not particularly difficult. They did give me a phone, so I was on call like all the time, and that wasn't really that fun. But I asked my wife one day, I said, I really want to work for this other company. Do you mind if I apply for it? We'd have to move to New York. And she goes, yeah, of course, you're not going to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So I sent in the application and I got the old thanks, but no thanks email back from, I think, Call Jeff at the time. I was like, yeah, you were right. I didn't get it. And then we promptly got married in June. We come back. Congratulations. Thank you. We went to our we went to our honeymoon. And when I came home from the honeymoon, a couple of weeks later, I got an email that said, hey, you know, we kept your thing on file. Are you still interested in the job? And so I sent another cover letter, <laughs> response to this email, not, not yes, exactly yes. another Yes, yes, okay, wait, letter. I have this in front of me. Let me read this front. So we <laughs> sent him a very kind of, lo- I mean, it was a generic letter that we sent to a few people, but it says, several months ago, you emailed us about applying for position, blah, 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 blah. We kept you on file. We'd like to talk to you. To which Nick Larson replied, yes, in all caps, I would have replied sooner, but I was painting my rocket, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> with an attached of picture of the rocket <laughs> wow. to which hold on let me finish this is great Jeff's note on the case now says it's edited by Jeff Zapansky guy might be a little strange but he really seems to be into programming and overall his Stack Overflow profile looks strong schedule for phone screen <laughs> Plus, appears to own Rocket. Must investigate. I mean, there's something to be said for someone really showing himself. I mean, you really showed a stack, a piece of yourself, and I think that's really important. Yeah, so let's tie it back now to the actual question here, which was, why did you... (laughs) What was the mindset in all of this? Again, I was happy. I would say, you know... If I were giving advice to other people, this is not what you should do. You should actually (laughs) write about some stuff that you want them to know about you and ask about you. And it should probably be tied to the work that you're going to do. I'll put the blog post in the show notes. So read that (laughs) instead of talking about your rocket. Well, there is a little bit of knowing who you're applying to. And I, I will say that smaller companies, startups, very, very, very small companies are a little bit different. And you want to write and you know, show that you're an interesting person, show that you have the ability to do the job and also that, you know, maybe you have a little bit of a personality. Whereas if you're applying to like a Microsoft or a big company or whatever, you want to be a little bit more formal. Know your audience. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think actually at the time it wasn't a bad cover letter. It'd be harder now because like we're already already at the size where like like it's going to get reviewed first by an HR person before even getting to a dev. And if it's too (laughs) weird, the HR person is going to kind of reject it. But at the time, these were going to Jeff Zapansky, who you know now is our COO, and we've got a lot of applications. And so in that case, you really are trying to kind of just do something a little strange and quirky to stand out from the giant pile of resumes. So I would say, like, I kind of like the quirky opening. 
you probably actually should have just used Definitely the rest memorable. of the email to, to sell yourself a little bit more because the rest of your email, we didn't read it, but he does the, the Braves Mets thing. And then he's just like, now let's get to business. Here's a link to my public CV. <laughs> and he closes with, and now I'm going to enjoy a tasty beverage and take the rest of the day off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you maybe overplayed the quirky a little bit, I would say, but you know, hey, you got the job. So it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. Yeah, I would have hired myself. The, the main <laughs> message of this podcast is here's a blog post that we're saying will help you know exactly how to apply for a job. And here's a whole bunch of reasons not to assign any credibility to its author on this topic. <laughs> well, to be fair, this was seven years ago and he learned a lot since then. So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Remember, when you're letting your true self shine through, you can shine too hard. David, didn't you once get a tube full of sparkles from somebody? Yes. Somebody thought a, a good way to make their <gasps> resume stand out was to glitter bomb me. They <sighs> both applied online and mailed a cardboard tube with their resume in it and glitter that poured out all over my desk. We did not hire that person. I don't think we even interviewed them. If they're listening, I'm sorry. You should not have sent the glitter. Sometimes Bad you call. can be too creative. Nick, are you going to have a follow-up to this blog post coming from the interviewer's perspective? Like, this is a better way to interview technical candidates? Maybe. So, like, when I started... <laughs> oh, it's kind of putting uh, you on the spot. Jeez. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. So when I started on careers, I was very focused on like the candidate side, right? Everything at Stack Overflow was about developers, and I wanted to make things as easy for developers as possible. And so I really got to the point where I wanted to just tell everybody that if you just do all of the things that I say, you're just going to get through the resume screens. If you just do everything I say, you're going to get through the phone screens. And when you get to the technical part of the interview, like you're going to have to know your stuff, right? But I will get you there. And that was my goal. So a lot of the writing that I do and a lot of the talking that I do is uh, focused on that kind of stuff. But I do think that there's some value in like teaching people to be better interviewers also. I don't really care if they want to be better interviews. I think people who are interviewing think that they're doing a good job no matter what. And I'm not sure if the audience is going to be the same. It's not people who are trying to make life-changing decisions. It's people who are making life-changing decisions for other people. And I I don't think they care as much in general. But, you know, for me, it was like I had this responsibility. And the reason I started practicing and learning how to interview was uh, as soon as I got the ability to do interviews here at Stack Overflow, it took about four minutes for me to realize, like, how big of a responsibility that was. And that, like, any time I hired somebody, I had to, like, increase and improve this company. I could not just, like, hire somebody because we need somebody to do this. I need to make sure that the person that comes in was going to be really good at it. And that meant doing my homework and making sure that I was getting what I needed to out of the interviews when interviewing other people. So to say that I won't ever do it, maybe if I saw some interest in it, I would be more than happy to. But I think for the most part, I'm going to stick to the, the person who's interviewing and talk about ways to get better at that. Well, if you do more blog posts, I just really want you to have more Wayne's World gifts in it. <laughs> Agreed. So I want to talk a little bit about your team's latest blog posts and tool. But before we do that, as our regular listeners know, we are preparing a constitution for Stack Overflow. And each week we bring you, our listeners, a proposal and you decide whether that proposal becomes part of our new constitution. Before we dig into our new proposal from newly minted constitutional scholar, Jess Pardue, we need to review the results from last time. So with the result of last week's survey question, you should remove the useless sub liner on your yogurt or hummus containers 
Here's our very own news editor, Ilana Itsaki. We are at 83% pro. Throw it away. Correct! No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't agree with it at all. But we do have a winner. It is Rue Sindrea at Rue underscore Altum Khan. Not because the liner offers protection, because I'm too lazy to take it to the trash right away. Accurate. Mm-hmm. 100% accurate. <laughs> See, that at least is not a nonsensical reason. Is this seem like as good a place as any to leave my garbage? Is at least there's a rationale behind it I can understand. <laughs> I don't love it, but I think that's reasonable. So with that, the Constitution will be updated as appropriate. But today's constitutional question comes from our very own newly minted constitutional scholar. And I think we're going to need some more in the weeks ahead. Jess Pardue. Hi. Okay. So I wanted to bring this to the listeners and to all of you here because my fiance and I have been having a discussion about this a lot. Oh, good. Just the kind <laughs> of conflict we look forward to. Seeing. I love weighing in on it's, relationships. It, no, it's, it's definitely not an argument. It's just a disagreement. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we live in New York City, which is a very touristy sort of area. And anyone who lives in New York City or another tourist area or even just somewhere where there's a landmark, if you are walking around this landmark, a lot of times tourists will stop you and ask you like, hey, can you take my picture? And so recently we were walking across the Brooklyn Bridge and we were walking for like exercise because our gym is actually very close to the Brooklyn Bridge on the Manhattan side. And we live in Brooklyn. So we were just walking across and someone said, excuse me, can you take my photo? And I was like, of course, of course, I'll take your photo. So it only takes a second. I took her photo. And Baird was, Baird's my fiance's name, was just kind of looking at me like, you know, you don't have to do that. Like, what do you mean you don't have to do that? He was like, you don't have to actually take somebody's picture. You can just say no. And I was like, no, I can't. You can't just say no, because I feel like we're envoys for the city. And New York already has the reputation of, like, being really rude. So I... <laughs> I don't want to add to anyone. Plus, if someone's on vacation, they just want a photo of them and their family or whatever on the Brooklyn Bridge or on this beautiful skyline. I'm not going to say no. It doesn't take anything. So my question is, if you're walking around and a tourist or someone else asks you to take their photo, do you think it's really rude to say no? Of course. <laughs> so wait, pro or con? So pro, if you think that you should say yes. When asked, you must take a picture. And con, if you think that it's totally okay and not rude to say no. Is there a carve out for like if you're super late? I mean, you could definitely. Clearly there's a carve out like, you know, somebody's giving birth and you're on your way to the yeah, hospital. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but like, so... uh, let's say under routine circumstances. Okay, good. Say you're walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. Pro is you're obligated to take the picture. Under you routine want to or circumstances, not. one must support their fellow tourists or whatever human beings by taking a picture when asked politely by a stranger right okay i usually offer <laughs> first i offer to take the photo before they even ask me i, I was do at dinner the too. other night sometimes people give you really wow. weird looks actually they're like are you trying to steal my camera and i'm like i'm just trying i to was help. at dinner the other night i was at via carota i was sitting at a communal table and i saw one out of you know there was a family of three she's taking a picture of the two and i looked over and i said would you like me to take a photo just huh my gosh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. I'm like, it took me what two seconds to take a photo of the three of you? Like, 
first I'll and foremost, you are a dramatically better human being than Jess is. I mean, it's, it's just <laughs> night and day. Right? Like, this is just a shaming Baird episode. Throwing Baird under the bus, It's huh? like having a superpower, right? Which is, like, essentially, like, at an incredibly tiny cost to you, you can do something that someone else cannot do. Like, in other words, you have a power they don't. They can't do that for themselves. And so, like, it, for the cost of three seconds, you've empowered them in some new way. And, yeah, you should, you know, we live in a society. And if you're a pro at it, what you will do is when they ask you to take the photo, you'll actually take two or three at one time. I took a few. You picked the best one. Yeah. Like, like here, here you go. Especially and... if it's not a digital camera, you just use up the whole roll of film. A whole other <laughs> way to go is you do it and like you line it up. And while you're lining it up, you hit that little like twisty thing. And then you get them to pose and you keep saying like, smile more and like, let's get a close up. And all you're doing is taking selfies over Always and over and over Always include a picture again. of yourself. I could be in favor of that rule. Like take two, like take the one of them and then like make them pose for a second one. And I've take done one that a couple of times actually. <laughs> <laughs> or just like turn around and like take a selfie with them. Oh Hold yeah. Hold on, let me get in this one. <laughs> I do think though, it's a leap of faith on their part because they're just giving you their phone it is weirder with a phone right like when it was like some cheap Imagine camera if you ran <laughs> it's almost always phone it's always a phone now i've yeah, never been handed anymore. a camera it's always like oh here here's my phone and so what does bear do does he yell, like yell at them and he's like no use a selfie stick no no or no, no he doesn't like... yell but he was just like you know you don't have to do that i'm like yes i do <laughs> i feel i feel obligated to be like of course I mean, right. it's kind of like we also joke because if I'm in like one of the car services, Lyft or something, they have to do something really egregious for me to not give them five stars. That one is I feel that way, too, because like their entire livelihood is dependent on me giving only five star reviews. Like, wasn't there a thing like Uber? It's like if they get like a four and a half star average, they're fired or something. Yeah, like, absolutely. What? Really? I don't know about that. Also, <laughs> Travis comes to your house and hits you with a stick. That's my understanding. <laughs> but it does feel a little bit like if you were walking past someone outside of an office building and they're like, they have a box, right? A file box they're holding. And they're like, hey, would you mind grabbing that door? And you're like, F you, buddy. I have a job. Like, it's like, <laughs> hey, you know. Or like the woman standing at the bottom of the steps with a carriage. Of course, you turn around and you say, do you need help? Yes. You know, like, it's just decency. But so I many people never don't. take help with the carriage. You know, like, it's very hard to actually I help women someone, all the time. Oh, maybe all no, the time. I see. They always take help. I got really mad the other day because, like, I was coming down the stairs and I was like, yes, I see some money. They need help. I'm going to offer them. And then someone got to them before me and did it. And I was like, oh, I missed my chance. See, New Yorkers are really, really nice. We are nice. New Yorkers are not rude. There's great studies on this. Yeah, I will say New Yorkers, that's one thing people are often surprised by. Like, your average New Yorker actually enjoys helping they don't like slow walking tourists in front of them, but a oh, tourist yeah. is like struggling rage. to figure out the subway. Like people will offer to help you if you yeah, just stand in front of a subway map and look confused. Yep. But I'm so worried about giving them the wrong direction. So if someone asks Bayard for directions, would he say no? No, he would tell them. Takes just he's as a, much time. He's a super nice guy. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. Also confessional. How many people have had the person stop them on the subway, ask them a question, you answer it very confidently, and then like, Five minutes later, realize you gave them the wrong See, I've answer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have I've done, done this. I have done this, and I, I feel, feel so, so awful. So bad. <laughs> because I can't tell them, oh, wait, I just sent you to, like, the Bronx. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Please send your letters from our Bronx listeners to Jeff Pardue, <laughs> care of Stack Overflow. <laughs> Ah, uh, that's the worst. So let me know what you guys think. So pro, if you think that you should say yes when somebody asks you to take their photo, you think it would be rude to 
should not do it. And con if you think it's totally okay and within your rights to say, nope, not going to do it. So reminder just to post your answer pro or con with your explanation to Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast. Keep your explanation short but sweet so it fits in 140 characters and the funniest answer will be read on next week's podcast and win a glorious Stack Overflow sticker, all courtesy of the Stack Overflow podcast. And now Stack Overflow podcast sticker. A Stack Overflow podcast and a Stack Overflow non-podcast sticker, hard to parse. Submit your ideas for future constitutional amendments and one of them might even be named after you. And you can also submit those suggestions under the same hashtag Stack Overflow podcast. And if it is non-terrible, we will feature it in a future poll. Thank you, Jess Pardue. You're welcome. Let's get back to Nick Larson, because he said lots of weird things, and I'm hoping there's more where those came from. You guys just announced you launched a new thing from our data team. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a new tool called Stack Overflow Trends. The way that this thing works is you can go and you can look at the percentage that any tags questions made up on the entire site during any time in the site's history. So first of all, you can find this if you go to insights.stackoverflow.com. Our loyal listeners will remember Insights is our sort of intelligence service for developer trends and what developers are doing. But one of the tools we provide there on that page is this new trends tool. If you ever use Google Ngrams, it's a lot like that. So it tracks over time, the percent and the relative kind of growth or shrinking. And this is super cool. Like you can compare, what are some of the interesting ones you guys looked at? I played with a couple. The ones that come like on the rebuilt list are the ones that I've been looking at the most. I mean, I built some of the stuff on the you just back tell our listeners that... to go read the page, read the manual, <laughs> basically? Okay. <laughs> so you can chart the most popular languages and things like that. Like one fun one I like to throw up, I think is not on this list, is you can look at Objective-C and Swift. And you can sort of see this moment where Objective-C disappears and Swift takes over. This is, though, based on the number of questions being asked. Is that correct? This is based on the number of questions being asked, yes. With that tag on it. That's correct. So one thing that's interesting, I wonder, I've been playing with this, and it is super cool. It's really easy to just basically just start typing. It'll recommend tags, and you can kind of track these technology trends over time. One thing that fascinates me is I wonder if views would present a different, different patterns in some places. In that, like, if you had a technology, for example, that became super popular and stayed super popular, like maintains dominance, but sort of the corpus is like more complete. I wonder if you'd almost see like the questions stop growing at some point, even though the user growth continues to. I honestly don't know the answer to that right off my head. Could you figure it out before the podcast is over? I actually doubt that. So I would guess that questions and views correlate really closely together. And we should go and look. I bet you're right. I think you're right. But I would guess if it's a technology that's still in use, there are always more questions to ask. This idea that we kind of run out of questions to ask is, I think, kind of a fallacy because there's like infinite variations of ways to ask the same questions over and over again, kind of what you see on Stack Overflow. So I suspect that wouldn't look really different, but that would be an interesting thing to run. I'm not sure either. Like An example I'd give, if you look at JavaScript, you can see the kind of the rise of JavaScript from the beginning of time through, call it maybe 2016 or so, and then it kind of flattened, basically. And what I'm wondering is, did JavaScript really stop growing, or did we kind of hit an equilibrium where the number of new questions just leveled off, basically, even though the total... And I don't know, I'm just... JavaScript is a little funny. I think the reason... It's hilarious. I think a bit of the issue there is that people stop tagging things JavaScript because they're not JavaScript questions that they're asking. Now they're asking Angular questions, and they're asking Ember questions, so they tag it with those. But there's still... 
you know, I don't know if you want to call that a JavaScript question or say that JavaScript is shrinking. That is definitely not correct. JavaScript is holding steady at yeah, yeah, 12% right. of all questions on Stack Overflow. So I'm not sure that that's even wrong as far as like a reflection of the industry. Like, it doesn't seem terribly wrong to me to think that JavaScript is kind of a huge part of the developer industry and kind of holding its own where it is. I think some of the interesting ones, actually one of the more interesting ones related to JavaScript is one of the ones we link in the post, I think, but jQuery. Oh, yeah. Where you can see it really kind of grew in dominance and it's kind of tracking like just right up there with JavaScript. And it was a joke for a while that like every JavaScript question, the answer is use just jQuery. Use jQuery. And then they start to diverge actually. And jQuery starts to just, just decline a bit. And if you plot some of the other frameworks like Angular and Backbone, you see those start to rise. And so it's almost like jQuery is still big and pretty strong, but it's interesting that sort of it's a good tool that does a good job but the real action in javascript is moving on and also some of the stuff built into browsers started to take over the need for jquery i think one thing that's cool about this is people are like well yeah you can look at any one site and see like but is that really representative is that capturing really all the developers activity and i think for us we're in a weirdly lucky position in that it seems like the answer is yes which is to say we know everyone's landing here we know whatever's missing seems to be getting constantly filled in like stack overflow is getting 14,000 questions a day now. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. There are some artifacts you can see, but I think they're getting more representative of the industry over time. Like one of the interesting ones is, somebody pointed this out, like C-sharp is declining over time, like significantly. Like it was at 1.15% of all questions and now it's more like seven, no, 6%. And I don't think that's actually, I don't think C-sharp is declining in the industry. I think in fact, it's probably still growing, but Stack Overflow started with such a strong C-sharp .NET Windows bias coming out of Joel on software and the community around coding horror had kind of that bias already built in that Stack Overflow is really weighted towards Windows programming at the beginning, and now it's becoming more representative of the whole industry. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So some of the older results, I feel like maybe are slightly less representative, but... Here's a crazy fun fact. Fortran has twice its percentage market share now than it did when we, when we started. <laughs> yeah, some languages that are probably not really growing. Could be a small sample problem, but... I thought another interesting data point on just sort of top-level languages is the growth of Python. We'll post all these links, but if you look, it was kind of holding steady at 4% of questions, and then somewhere around 2012, it started growing. It's grown pretty steadily up to 8% now, which is interesting because Python's not a new language. You know, it's been around for a while. It's not like we're charting the growth of Swift. But it feels like if you graph Python in R, I can't help but think that... Python's growing for data science. From 2012 on, Python, like, basically hockey sticks up. Actually, I kind of doubt that. So that really? is one big use of Python. So actually, I think Nick pointed out right before we started the show that, like, schools are switching to teaching Python from Java, oh, which I think oh. might actually be the bigger factor. One thing oh, to look at would be whether Python's growth is seasonal might be an interesting question to look for there. The only reason I doubt the data science thing is I don't think that gets you to 8% of all questions on Stack Overflow. Data science is not that big. Sorry, data scientists. There's another phone where you can basically plot like iOS and then you plot Android. You can see kind of where it explodes and gets bigger. And then you could add Windows phone. And that just basically highlights the x-axis in a pretty comical way, which <laughs> I, I thought was fun. Oh, another cool one was the cloud service comparison. It's another one that somebody posted comparing Azure, AWS, Amazon, and Google Cloud. And it's really interesting that Azure and AWS are kind of neck and neck, but Google Cloud is like not even in the running, which I think I've seen that reported elsewhere that somehow Google is really losing the cloud race 
relative to Amazon, which really took it over early, and Azure, which is sort of coming on strong recently. Google is fighting from way behind on that. It feels to me like there's some cool, like real practical applications here too, though. Like if you're trying to figure out like which of two technologies is like trending up, trending down for broader adoption, right? Especially in like niche stuff where there's not a lot of public stuff out there. This provides a pretty compelling, I think, trustworthy snapshot of sort of what's on the rise, what's on the decline, what's getting traction, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you can play with it yourself. Insights.stackoverflow.com slash trends. And it's a pretty cool tool. Type in any of the top, I think, 2,000 tags on Stack Overflow and see them graphed instantly back to 2008. Pretty awesome. People are playing with it, and I see like people tweeting about it. Lots of really interesting graphs. All right. So check out the tool, read the blog post. And with that, do we have any news today? <laughs> Microsoft announced at their build conference that they now have 500 million monthly active devices running Windows 10. It is now growing at twice the rate of Windows 8. Microsoft also said 90% of Fortune 500 companies use Azure in some form or another, and that Office now has 100 million commercial users monthly. I think there's kind of a couple interesting stories here. So one is one that makes me sad, which is that one of the ways that Microsoft got to this point of so many people on Windows 10 was by being super obnoxiously and I think sometimes like to the detriment of user experience aggressive about getting people to upgrade. Like wasn't it just constantly trying to power down your computer and do it? Like <laughs> like if you just left it by itself, it would decide to upgrade your computer without your input. <laughs> and even if you said no, like it would just keep asking. Like it was kind of some shady stuff that they've, I think, apologized for since. But I worry that it basically did exactly what they wanted. And, you know, they don't actually feel that bad about it. So that's one thing that's kind of a little sad to me about this news. Even though I generally like Windows, I feel like they, they cheated to get there. And that's the news. <laughs> no, <laughs> the other interesting thing that I think, and I don't know how much this is really reflected in there, but the feeling that Mac OS is kind of stumbling with the latest MacBook release, you know, anecdotally, I see a surprising number of people who were like diehard Mac users, you know, they were waiting for the latest MacBook and then it was super unimpressive and now they're buying Dells or something. Dells, Dells, what is this? Yeah, so many people 2000? are like, I don't want my... My new MacBook. So, you know, I don't know if that's how representative of that is of like actuality, but it certainly feels to me like Apple did not do themselves a favor with this last launch and Microsoft is sort of ready right there to capitalize on it. Microsoft because... Windows, it's a thing and many people use that thing. Have either you, Jay or Nick, used Windows 10? I'm on Windows 10 right now. What's your opinion of it? It's Windows. It's Windows. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it when it first came out, but as soon as they added back the start button, like everything was fine. Honestly, I feel like it's Windows is about the best that Microsoft aims for with a Windows launch. <laughs> like at this point, all they hope is like it's not Windows ME. Oh, I had that one. And it's not Windows 8, right? Like their best launches are the ones where people are like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and their worst launches are like, it's unusable. Please, for the <laughs> love of God, do not upgrade to this version of Windows. I will say that I much preferred the old style for, like, the Windows than the Metro style. I can't stand that. And especially when, like, I get some application for whatever it is that I'm doing, and I don't have a choice. I have to use that stupid, like, Metro view. I can't stand that. What's the difference? 
It's like flat and it's like iPad. It's like a standalone. Oh, app. this is like sometimes the app you open opens in a window on the desktop, and sometimes it opens in like weird tablet mode, and you're like, "Get me out of here!" Yeah, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, they've still got this really super weird split ecosystem thing where there's like two modes yeah. that it runs in, which is I agree. That's just a weird, bizarre, jarring experience that you don't yeah, know yeah. which you're gonna get until you like run the app and see. Yeah, I think it would probably be fine if, like, it was a tablet. But, like, especially when you have two monitors and, like, one of them's in windowed mode and one of them's in this, like, crazy thing, it's just so unusable. And it's also, like, you have to go right into the corners and kind of latch on to get it to do certain things, and I really hate that. But for the most part, I try to just stay out of it, and it's all right. I think that I've been using Mac OSs for so long that I don't even know what I would do. If I got put with a Windows machine. You'd be surprised how familiar it is, I think. Like, they're converging in a way that, like, it's not as foreign a feeling to get dropped from one to the other now. It's, like, at least my impression. Unless you're trying to get to the settings. I don't know how to get to the settings on a Mac. Now, when you try to do, like, some advanced stuff, you can get very lost and confused. But kind of funny either. <laughs> my mom switched from a Mac to a Dell years ago. And after that, she said she would never get another Dell. Yeah, I mean, it can still be a disorienting experience switching between them, but I don't know. In my mind, I kind of switch back and forth between them. And at some level, like the job of the OS is to just kind of get out of your way at this point. Like, who cares? Yeah. I don't want to, like, don't make me think, basically. Run my web browser, which is 90% of what I do on the computer. Yeah. Stop making me think about settings and resolutions and, and crap like that. Yeah, well, one of my biggest complaints, though, about the Mac, I have a Mac laptop that I use, like, when I'm not at my desk or in my office. And the thing that I hate about it the most is that you're always in a mode. Like, you're always in, you know, this app, and the bar at the top only has the controls for this app. And you can't ever make anything, like, really full screen unless you just go all the way and get rid of the start bar and get rid of everything. And it's, like, for real full screen, and the little drop down pops down from the top. And, like, Maybe you can fix all of that stuff, but like, I, it's just too much for me. I don't take care of that. So I, that's my biggest gripe <laughs> about a Mac. I just don't know how to do it. It's not worth my time. Tragic story of a professional developer overwhelmed by the complexities of OSX. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've gone and wasted another hour of your life listening to the Stack Overflow podcast number 109, recorded Thursday, May 11th, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City. If you enjoyed this podcast... Please tell a friend, spread the word. We need more subscribers if we are ever to be more popular than I was in high school. This podcast has been brought to you by Tomy's entire line of state-of-the-fun robots and Stack Overflow jobs, where over 10,000 companies hire developers just like you. Go try it now before one of those jokers gets your job. Our audio engineer is Carlos Hernandez. Audio editor is David Greenley. Technology concierge is Michael Rosa. Producer is Jess Pardue. Executive producer is Caitlin Pike. Four special guests, Nick Larson, David Fullerton, Ilana Itsaki, and Jiminy Cricket, my childhood friend, which ironically mostly means I had very little imagination. I'm Jay Hanlon. Have a not terrible day. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. See you. take my picture, Fell 
into a little bit of a trap there on that on that ending speech where you just had to keep going into higher and higher registers yeah, as yeah, you yeah, went. Yeah. <laughs> and if it hadn't ended soon, your voice would have started cracking. I was getting yeah. a little worried for you, but you got out without a disaster. Growth or shrinkage. Shrinking? Shrinkage sounded weird. Uh, shrinkage is yeah, something else. It's evocative of very specific <laughs> things, but we digress. I'm going to do that all over again because I downgraded live. It's a Tomy log and load train.